Chapter Twenty One of The Girl from Hollywood by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. On the following Monday, a pockmarked Mexican appeared at the county jail in Los Angeles during visiting hours and asked to be permitted to see Slick Allen. The two stood in a corner and conversed in whispers. Allen's face wore an ugly scowl when his visitor told him of the young Pennington's interference with their plans. It's getting too hot for us around there, said Allen. We gotta move. How much junk you got left? About sixty cases of booze. We got rid of nearly three hundred cases on the coast side without sending them through Evans. There isn't much of the other junk left. A couple pounds altogether at the outside. We gotta lose the last of the booze, said Allen. But we'll get our money's worth out of it. Now you listen, and you listen carefully, Bartolo. He proceeded very carefully and explicitly to explain the details of a plan, which brought a grin of sinister amusement to the face of the Mexican. It was not an entirely new plan, but rather an elaboration and improvement of the one that Allen had conceived some time before, in the event of a contingency similar to that which had now arisen. And what about the girl? asked Bartolo. She should pay well to keep the Penningtons from knowing. Leave her to me, replied Allen. I shall not be in jail forever. During the ensuing days of that late September week, when Shannon and Custer rode together, there was a certain constraint in their relations that was new and depressing. The girl was apprehensive of the outcome of his adventure on the rapidly approaching Friday. While he could not rid himself of the haunting memory of her solitary and clandestine ride over the mysterious trail which led into the mountains. It troubled him that she should have kept the thing a secret, and it troubled him that he should care. What difference could it make to him where Shannon Burke wrote? He asked himself that question a hundred times, but though he always answered that it could make no difference, he knew perfectly well that it had made a difference. He often found himself studying her face, as if he could find there an answer to his question, or a refutation of the suspicion of trickery and deceit, which had arisen in his mind and would not down. What a beautiful face it was, not despite its irregular features, but because of them, and because of the character and individuality they imparted to her appearance. Custer could not look upon that face and doubt her. Several times she caught him in the act of scrutinizing her thus, and she wondered at it, for in the past he had never appeared to be consciously studying her. She was aware, too, that he was troubled about something. She wished that she might ask him, that she might invite his confidence, for she knew the pain of unshared sorrows. But he gave her no opening. So they rode together, often in silence. And though their stirrups touched many a time, yet constantly they rode further and further apart, just because chance had brought Custer Pennington from the office that Saturday afternoon to look out over the southern hills at the moment when Shannon had ridden down the trail into the meadow above Jackknife Canyon. At last Friday came. Neither had reverted, since the previous Saturday, to the subject that was uppermost in the mind of each. But now Shannon could not refrain from seeking once more to deter Custer from his project. She had not been able to forget the sinister smile of the Mexican, or to rid her mind of the intuitive conviction that the man's final statement had concealed a hidden threat. They were parting at the fork of the road. She had hesitated until the last moment. "'You still intend to try to catch those men tonight?' she asked. "'Yes. Why?' I hope you would give it up. I am afraid something may happen. I... Oh, please don't go, Custer. She wished that she might add, for my sake. He laughed shortly. I guess there won't be any trouble. If there is, I can take care of myself. She saw that it was useless to insist further. Let me know if everything else is all right, she asked. Light the light in the big cupola in the house when you get back. I can see it from my bedroom window, and then I shall know that nothing has happened. I shall be watching for it. All right, Custer promised, and they parted. He wondered why she should be so perturbed about his plans for the night. 
There was something peculiar about that, something that he couldn't understand or explain, except in accordance with a single hypothesis, a hypothesis which he scorned to consider, yet which rode his thoughts like the veritable little old man of the sea. Had he known the truth, it would all have been quite understandable, but how was he to know that Shannon Burke loved him? When he reached the house, the ranch bookkeeper came to tell him that the Los Angeles operator had been trying to get him all afternoon. "'Somebody in L.A. wants to talk to you on an important business,' said the bookkeeper. "'You're to call back the minute you get here.' Five minutes later he had his connection. An unfamiliar voice asked if he were the younger Mr. Pennington. "'I am,' he replied. "'Someone cut your fence last Friday. You like to know who he is?' "'What about it? Who are you?' "'Never mind who I am. I was with them. They double-crossed me. You want to catch them? "'I want to know who they are and why they cut up my fence.' And why the devil they're up back there in the hills? You listen to me. You saw Big Jackknife Canyon? Yes. Tonight they bring down the load just before dark. They do that every Friday and hide the burrows until very late. Then they come down into the valley while everyone is asleep. Tonight they hide him in Jackknife. They tie him there and go away. About ten o'clock they come back. You be there at nine o'clock and you catch him when they come back. Sabi? How many of them are there? Only two. You don't have to be afraid. They don't pack no guns. You take gun and you catch them all alone. But how do I know that you're not stringing me? You listen. They double-cross me. I get even. You don't want to catch them? I don't care. That's all. Goodbye. Custer turned away from the phone, running his fingers through his hair in a charismatic gesture, signifying perplexity. What should he do? The message sounded rather fishy, he thought, but it would do no harm to have a look into Jackknife Canyon around nine o'clock. If he was being tricked, the worst he could fear was that they had taken this method of luring him the jackknife while they brought the loaded burrows down from the hills by some other route. If they had done that, it was very clever of them, but he would not be fooled a second time. Custer Pennington didn't care to be laughed at, and so, if he was going to be hoaxed that night, he had no intention of having a witness to his idiocy. For that reason, he did not take Jake with him, but rode alone up Sycamore when all the inmates of the castle of the hill fought him in bed and asleep. It was a clear night. Objects were plainly discernible at short distances, and when he passed the horse pasture, he saw the dim bulks of the brooding mares a hundred yards away. A coyote voiced its uncanny cry from a near hill. An owl hooted dismally from a distance. But these sounds, rather than depressing him, had the opposite effect, for they were of the voices of the knights that he had known and loved since childhood. When he turned into Jackknife, he reined the Apache in and sat for a moment listening. From farther up the canyon, out of sight, there came the shadow of a sound. That would be the tethered burrows, he thought, if the whole thing was not a trick. But he was certain that he heard the sound of something moving there. He rode on again, but he took the precaution of loosening his gun in its holster. There was, of course, the bare possibility of a sinister motive behind the message he had received. As he thought of it now, it occurred to him that his informant was perhaps a trifle too insistent in assuring that it was safe to come up there alone. Well, the man had put it over cleverly, if that had been his intent. Now Custer saw a dark mass beneath a sycamore. He rode directly toward it, and in another moment he saw that it represented half a dozen laden burrows tethered to a tree. He moved the Apache close in to examine them. There was no sign of men about him. He examined the packs, leaning over and feeling one. What they contained he could not guess, but it was not firewood. They evidently consisted of six wooden boxes to each burrow, three on a side. He reined the Apache in behind the burrows in the darkness of the tree's shade, and there he waited for the coming of the men. He did not like the look of things at all. What could those boxes contain? 
There was no legitimate traffic through or out of these hills that can explain the weekly trip of this little pack train, and if the men in charge of it were employed in any illegitimate traffic, they would not be surrendering to a lone man as meekly as his informant had suggested. The days of smuggling through the hills from the ocean was over, or at least Custard had thought it was over. But this thing must look like a recrudescence of the old-time commerce. As he sat there waiting, he had ample time to think. He speculated upon the identity and the purpose of the mysterious informant who had called him up from Los Angeles. He speculated again upon the contents of the packs. He recalled the whiskey that Guy had sold him from time to time, and wondered if the packs might not contain liquor. He had gathered from Guy that his supply came from Los Angeles, and he had never given the matter a second thought. But now he recalled the fact, and concluded that if this was whiskey, it was not from the same source as Guy's. All the time he kept thinking of Shannon and her mysterious excursion into the hills. He recalled her anxiety to prevent him from coming up here tonight, and he tried to find reasonable explanations for it. Of course, it was the obvious explanation that did not occur to him, but several did occur that he tried to put from his mind. Then from the mouth of Jackknife he heard the sound of horses' hooves. The Apache pricked up its ears, and Custer leaned forward and laid a hand upon his nostrils. Quiet, boy, he admonished in a low whisper. The sounds approached slowly, halting occasionally. Presently, two horsemen rode directly past him on the far side of the canyon. They rode at a brisk trot. Apparently they did not see the pack train, or, if they saw it, they paid no attention to it. It disappeared in the darkness, and the sound of their horses' hooves ceased. Pennington knew that they had halted. Who could they be? Certainly not the drivers of the pack train, else they would have stopped with the burrows. He listened intently. Presently he heard horses walking slowly toward him from up the canyon. The two who had passed were coming back, stealthily. I sure have got myself into a pretty trap, he soliloquized a moment later, when he heard the movements of the mountain men in the canyon below him. He drew his gun and sat waiting. It was not long that he had to wait. A voice coming from the short distance down the canyon addressed him. Ride out into the open and hold up your hands, it said. We got you surrounded and covered. If you make a break, we'll bore you. Come on now, step lively, and keep your hands up. It was the voice of an American. Who in thunder are you? demanded Pennington. I am a United States Marshal, was the quick reply. Pennington laughed. There was something convincing in the very tone of the man's voice, possibly because Custer had been expecting to meet Mexicans. Here was a hoax indeed, but evidently as much on the newcomers as on himself. They had expected to find a lawbreaker. They would doubtless be angry when they discovered that they had been duped. Custer rode slowly out from beneath the tree. Hold up your hands, Mr. Pennington, snapped the marshal. Custer Pennington was nonplussed. They knew who he was, and yet they demanded that he should hold up his hands like a common criminal. Hold on there, he cried. What's the joke? If you know who I am, what do you want me to hold up my hands for? How do I know you're a marshal? You don't know it, but I know that you're armed and that you're in a mighty bad hole. I don't know what you might do, and I ain't taking no chances. So stick em up and do it quick. If anybody's going to get bored around here, it'll be you, and not none of my men. You're a damned fool, said Pennington succinctly, but he held up his hands before his shoulders, as he had been directed. Five men rode from the shadows and surrounded him. One of them dismounted and disarmed him. He lowered his hands and looked about at them. Would you mind, he said, showing me your authority for this, and telling me what in the hell it's all about? One of the men threw back his coat, revealing a silver shield. That's my authority, he said. That and the goods we got on you. What goods? Well, we expected to get him when we examined these packs. Look here, said Custer. You're all wrong. I have nothing to do with that pack train or what it's packing. I came up here to catch the fellows who've been bringing it down through Ganado every Friday night and who cut our fence last week. 
I don't know any more about what's in those packs than you do. Evidently not as much. That's all right, Mr. Pennington. You'll probably get a chance to tell all that to a jury. We've been laying for you since last spring. We didn't know it was you until one of your gangs squealed, but we knew that this stuff was somewhere in the hills above L.A., and we aimed to get it and you sooner or later. Me? Well, not you particularly, but whoever was bootlegging it. To tell you the truth, I'm plumb surprised to find who it is. I thought all along it was some gang of cheap greasers, but it don't make no difference who it is to your Uncle Sam. You said someone told you it was I? asked Custer. Sure. How else would we know it? It don't pay to double-cross your pals, Mr. Pennington. What are you going to do with me? he asked. We're going to take you back to L.A. and get you held by the federal grand jury. Tonight? We're going to take you back tonight. Can I stop at the house first? No. We got a warrant to search the place, and we're going to leave a couple of my men here to do it the first thing in the morning. I got an idea you ain't the only one around here that knows something about this business. As they talked, one of the deputies had taken a case from the pack and opened it. Look here, he called. It's it, all right. It's what? asked Custer. Oh, Peruna, of course, replied the deputy facetiously. What did you think it was? I hope you never thought it none of that hooch stolen from a government-boarded warehouse in New York. The others laughed at his joke. It's too bad, said the marshal, not at all unkindly, for decent young folk like you to get mixed up in a nasty business like this. I agree with you, said Pennington. His mind traveled like lightning, flashing a picture of Shannon Burke riding out of the hills and across the meadows above Jackknife Canyon, of her inquiry that very afternoon as to whether he was coming up here tonight. Had she really wished to dissuade him, or had she only desired to make sure of his intentions? The light would not shine from the big cupola tonight. What message would the darkness carry to Shannon Burke? End of chapter 21